The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by VEPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by Peter Jewell, and you're listening to episode 69 of The Planning Exchange. Today, we're joined by two leading growth area planners, Megan Ablett and Emily Cook from Cardinia Shire Council, who will be talking to us today about the challenges and criticisms around growth area planning. So Emily and Megan, would you mind just giving a quick um, background um, and introduction of yourselves? Em, did you want to jump in first? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so I'm, I'm Emily. Uh, I'm a Principal Growth Area Statutory Planner at Cardinia Shire Council. I myself uh, grew out grew up out in the southeast suburbs watching new housing estates form uh, and from there decided that planning was was what I wanted to do and, and study uh, and was lucky enough quite early on to, to move into growth area planning specifically uh, and I've been at Cardinia for five and a half years now. Cool. Um, yeah, so... Megan, anyway, I started off working at Borborshire Council. Um, so I worked there for two years and um, I kind of started off in planning because my oldest or my second oldest sister is also a planner. She works at uh, Casey Council. So I guess I was trying to follow the lead. We're pretty similar and have similar interests. So it kind of, um, yeah, aligned well for me to follow that path. And she worked at Borbor. And so I, yeah, started as a student planner there. Yeah, as I said, I worked there for a couple of years. And then I went on to work at Whitehorse, so Whitehorse Council. And I worked there for six months as a contractor um, till I moved over to Cadinia. I've been there at Cadinia for the last two and a half years in the growth area team as a growth area stat planner. Fantastic. I love the family connection there as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was just wondering as well um, for our listeners, because we do have a lot of interstate and international listeners, could you just ex- uh, describe exactly where Cardinia is in the grand context of things? Yeah. So um, in terms of growth areas in Melbourne, you've got the, the growth area out to the north and the west, with Whittlesea, Wyndham, Melton, Hume, and then we form part of the Southeast Growth Corridor, which is us and City of Casey. So Cardinia sits right on the edge of metropolitan Melbourne. Right, um, and this is the Greenfields is where pure planning theory hits the realities of creating communities. Do you think you are well prepared for, where did you pick up your skills that you now have? In those kind of skills, growth areas can be very different to to straight stat planning and um, when I was at Borbore and Whitehorse that's I just worked in normal stat planning and coming into the growth areas as in their stat planning role it was definitely different to what um, I expected and and working in those kind of greenfield areas and I guess you yeah you're probably right in some ways it is you know you're starting off with a what looks like a kind of a blank canvas and you're building it up to be something totally different and new um, which can definitely have like challenges and maybe appear a bit daunting as a as a new planner or starting off in the growth areas but um, it is really interesting to work in that being able to kind of have you know you do feel like you've got a lot of influence and you see a lot of change so 
something might be a paddock one day and then, you know, 12 months later, there's houses going up in it and 12 months after that, it's a fully established estate. So, um, yeah, I think it is a really, like you were saying, it is. It probably does feel like real kind of planning rather than I guess you looking at your, your res code kind of heights and setbacks and things like that. We do a bit of that. But, yeah, it is It is um, an interesting tool to work in to kind of start with your blank canvas and see it all develop. I find as well that it's a really interesting and really challenging space to work in because you find yourself being um, probably far more of an expert in the engineering side of things than you would normally um, if you're working in on all inner city projects. I think there's far more of an expectation that you um, understand the intricacies around that. Do you agree? Absolutely. Uh, growth area finders need to be a little bit expert in, in a lot of things. Um, the, the applications and, and the sites that we look at, we look at everything from hydrology to traffic, um, contamination, economics. Yeah, you need to be across a whole lot more than um, just sort of basic planning principles. Uh, the, the responsibilities you've both got are massive, um, not just to new residents who are moving in and presumably their first home first home buyers, but also residents who live in these communities for generations. Do you feel the weight of that responsibility? Definitely. Um, one of the things that you find yourself just sitting and, and thinking and pondering over is the sort of interactions um, of all of the decisions that you make. So trying to, to picture in your mind's eye, if I issue this permit condition that leads to this title restriction that continues in perpetuity, what does that mean for the next person who buys the land or the one after? Um, or if I delay this piece of infrastructure, what does that mean for downstream and, and their ability to, to develop? So it's something you spend a lot of time thinking about, um, definitely before you issue permits for, for such big sites. One of the things um, that Pete and I quite often speak about on this podcast is about experimentation and the ability, I guess, for planning to play that role um, in the broader industry. Do you see, do you, or do you often see, I guess, in the growth areas, any real experimentation with different, um, I guess, different uh, concepts and different things that you wouldn't normally see perhaps in other municipalities and if you do, is that a good thing? And if you don't, is it something that you would like to see more of? I think from from where we start um, in the growth areas, the, the very first thing that we need to achieve is, is meeting the basic needs of the community that's going to live there, um, making sure that we have the appropriate land or, or infrastructure to provide for them. Uh, and then, then there's the room for experimentation. A lot of what we do um, is very much driven by the market and by developers um, and by what people want. So um, we do see experimentation in sort of house forms, um, in some commercial developments. But, yeah, I would say they're largely driven by the market. What we're talking about is the creation of communities. Um, and, and, Meg, you've got to make allowances for uh, the economic opportunities of new residents the transport needs, the schooling needs, the uh, civic and religious needs. Uh, there's a lot to pull together, I would think. I mean, this is, as, as we said at the start, it really is pure planning. Yeah, look, I guess that there is a lot, as, as Em said earlier, we, we consider a lot of things when, when it comes into an application. Um, and I guess uh, probably something that I've kind of learnt is to, to really have the community at, at the forefront. So I guess sometimes you can get kind of bogged down with 
you know, the nitty gritty of things and, and, you know, might be going back and forth with developers. And I think really what we're trying to do is the best we can in a situ in any given situation. Um, you know, sometimes that doesn't work out to be a perfect outcome, but if you kind of have the community in mind and their needs in mind, then, you know, that's, I think that's really important for us as growth area planners to, to maintain that in order to achieve good outcomes for the communities moving forward for to meet their needs for, yeah, as you said, open space, uh, you know, community infrastructure, things like that, yeah. And just going back to that point I made before around experimentation, um, along a similar vein, I guess, is new ideas and, and partnerships with um, universities and um, external uh, companies. I'm just wondering what kind of relationships or partnerships you might have with other universities to start looking at, um, I guess, ways that we can create different types of communities in greenfields. I'm thinking through um, some of the concepts that have come out in recent times around um, creating healthier communities and, you know, the 20-minute neighbourhood kind of concept that's been around for a while now. Have you started to see any of that research, um, I guess, start to filtrate, infiltrate through these uh, greenfield areas? Some of those um, particular, the, the healthy principles um, and 20-minute cities and those sorts of things are very much um, sought for in, in precinct structure plans. Um, they sort of come back to those first principles of, of what we're designing for, but it is very tricky uh, when it's going to take the development of, of a whole precinct structure plan to see those outcomes on the ground. Um, it's definitely hard when they're sort of piecemeal along the way and then it takes everything adding together to achieve those outcomes. I would say to um, that there's probably a, certainly when I was at, at university a slight bias uh, towards green or against greenfield planning, um, which I think sort of maybe hinders a little bit in terms of where those energies are going. Yeah, I definitely I would agree, and with that, um, that's something that I guess coming from straight start planning to to growth area planning. Um, yeah, trying to change your mindset around that, that you've kind of been ingrained in to, you know, saying no or, and yeah, as I said, in university, you are kind of taught that greenfield areas are bad. So um, that, that was definitely something I found learning coming into a growth area is to change your mindset around that and have a more facilitative approach and trying to achieve the best outcome you can in that kind of a situation and yeah I definitely feel like there is a bias and disconnect between uni and what it's like on the ground um, in greenfield areas. So I know um, and, and look I completely agree with that I think um, most people come out of uni with that particular mindset um, it seems to be ingrained in the um, in the system somehow. Um, I just wanted to go back again you can tell probably that I've got a bit of a um, slant towards talking about health outcomes here. Um, but I wanted to know um, what you've seen, I guess, in your experience in terms of health outcomes in these growth areas and whether or not those sorts of health factors um, work into the, the PSP process or the strategic planning process that might occur. I think probably the, the main focus for health in, in sort of our growth area planning that, that I've seen is around um, active transport. Uh, I appreciate that that's probably one of the easier um, elements to aim for, but we are lucky in terms of uh, growth area planning uh, that the strategic planning really seeks to ingrain that into the very design of the entire area, um, all the interconnections to make sure 
that people can get around in those ways. Like I said before, it is really hard when that's what you're aiming for, but you're missing key segments to to make those connections work. Uh, but in terms of health, I'd say that's probably the the main focus. Just just talking about the snobbery about the outer areas. I mean, it's not just in academia. Academia, sorry, I think in broader cultural sense too. Just that uh, snobbery towards the suburbs, and particularly the outer outer suburbs, has been part of the Australian cultural scene for a long time. But one thing I wanted to ask was that um, Megan M. Uh, the VCAT, um, who's the, for listeners, that's the tribunal who adjudicates on planning disputes in Victoria. Every year they go out in a bus and look at their previous decisions to see how they unfolded. Do you do those sort of similar study tours of going to the you know other growth areas or are there seminars looking at what's gone right and what's gone wrong with, with you know, I'll call them new towns? Does that sort of follow up? systemic sort of reviews happen and should they? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a really good question. I think uh, we're really fortunate where our offices sit, um, right in the middle of Officer PSP. So we kind of do get to see the outcomes of what's of, of our decisions, you know, when we look out the window. Um, and I do think it's something that I definitely has been, you know, pushed to me at working at Cadenia and our team. I think it's something that we're really good at is looking at previous decisions and always looking at where we where we can approve. We do often go out and have a look around our growth area because things change so rapidly. It is really interesting to, yeah, as I said, oh, I haven't been out there for a few months, drive out to that new estate and it's completely built out and to see the outcome of that. And it's something as well, our... Um, you know, our manager and coordinator push as well is we we recently did a bus tour with the Casey um, growth area planners and we had a look around some of their subdivisions and, and things like that. We had planned a trip to the other side of the city, but I think coronavirus and things got in the way. So it's definitely something that we um, our, personally, our team tries to do um, and we do work pretty closely with Casey trying to meet up with them and get their ideas on things as well. So I think it's a great idea you know, to always learn from previous decisions and, you know, maybe not even, they're not even always mistakes, but just how they can be, things can be better executed when you see them actually on the ground. I think as well, one of the, one of the things that I've really noticed in the last few years as well is that the growth areas, um, particularly, uh, I'm, I'm particularly well-versed, I guess, in the Northwestern growth areas. And I know that they tend to attract um, very specific um, demographics and and particular groups of people, um, and that in itself, if it's if it's captured in the right way, it actually creates these really culturally diverse, really interesting communities. And if if you've got a good developer on board, um, the facilities that can be provided are actually really really high quality, and sometimes even better quality than what you would find in some of the inner suburbs. So I think I think you're right. There is there is a bit of snobbery there. And um yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting thought. But I wondered whether or not you'd noticed any particular trends like that in the Cardinia Shire. In terms of um the the new facilities that we're seeing, we're probably a little bit different um, because some of our facilities um, are still funded through the DCP, whereas in other um, newer sort of uh, DCPs, they're being funded by developers. So I think probably as we move from the DCP system 
into the ICP system that we might see some more of that innovation um, and some more sort of spectacular maybe infrastructure being delivered by developers. Just for our listeners, can you explain what those two terms mean, DCP and ICP? I'm completely ignorant about what happens in growth areas, so I'll put my hand up to that. And, yes, I went out to Officer recently and was just blown away by just the creation of urban areas. But if you could just explain what those two terms mean. Sure. So um, when a when a precinct structure plan is prepared, there's a corresponding document, uh, which was previously development contribution plan, DCP, and which moving forward will be infrastructure contribution plan, ICP. Uh, and that looks at all of the infrastructure that's required to be delivered to facilitate the precinct and then looks at the funding mechanism to get that happening on the ground. Okay. So... You are dealing with inorganic growth, not something that just, not an urban area that evolves gradually over time, but really instant mix, instant recipe. How do you create identity and avoid cliches of, say, metro town or any town? The the very starting point for a new growth area plan, precinct structure plan, whatever it may be, is always what's there first. Uh, so in some cases that might be uh, heritage sites, it might be tr- topography, particular veg, whether you've got big river red gums or, or whatever it may be, small strip towns, uh, and you really build your growth area plan from there, um, incorporating what, what was there in the past and, and moving that forward into the new. At a smaller level, at a more micro level, each individual developer has a particular aesthetic and a brand that they're trying to create. Um, and so even though a, a new suburb might feel like all new, going from a state to a state can actually be really different depending on what is trying to be achieved in each of those. Yeah, I, I agree with what Emma's saying, but I also I can see where it comes from with, you know, they kind of can look all the same in somewhat degree. And I do think that's an influence from having volume builders, um, you know, in the last how many years when that's become your main source of building um, dwellings, whereas in the past, you know, it was more cost custom kind of build. So you got that more diversity in terms of just what the dwellings actually look like. And I think that is difficult to achieve in the growth area is that often the houses do have that kind of look of the same thing because everyone's using this, you know, the same kind of few volume builders and generally the volume builders kind of facades follow that same kind of recipe. So, yeah, they, I absolutely agree with Em. You know, they, it does create different identity with the topography and what's there. And, yeah, as I said, each developer kind of has their own look that they're going to go for. Um, but it can definitely be difficult in terms of when it comes down to the actual dwellings and, you know, creating that diversity and sense of identity for each area with just through the lack of diversity of the dwellings from volume builders. Uh, when you're dealing with lots of new residents, many who come from many different places, and presumably those new residents want to attach to a community identity, do you find that, that sort of thing? Look, we do. Um, it, it's interesting. Each each estate uh, seems to sort of organically, whether it's it's started through the developer or not, um, have their own community groups, which which is great to see. Um, people sort of joining together to to uh, take ownership of their particular estate um, and and band together. It's, it's great too when we see uh, the things that we've put in place really aid 
those connections. So whether it's, say, a park run uh, in a park that you've you've spent a lot of time um, designing and making sure works well um, or a space where people seem to gather together to um, watch movies in, on summer nights, it, it's great to see those happening. And the other thing I wanted to talk about was housing mix. And I know we, we touched on this a few minutes ago, but with... Um, Precinct structure plans quite often um, start to designate or um, provide preferred mixes of different dwelling types in in the future um, development applications. Are you starting to see a lot more medium density coming through in growth areas? And if you are, where is it located? Is it is it adjacent to public open space? Is it adjacent to shops? What what are you seeing in that space? It gets tricky now um, deciding what we call medium density. Uh, overall, the, the lot sizes are, are reducing to the point where there are things that we probably would have called medium before but are, are now effectively conventional or, or standard. Um, we're in a particularly unique situation in Officer that we have very fragmented land ownership and therefore are seeing uh, a general increase in or a seeking, developers seeking a general increase of density uh, across the board. Uh, ideally, as planners, we still try and um, focus that energy around high amenity places like parks and as close to the town centre as possible. Uh, but we are in some part driven by by the market and what people are wanting and it seems to be what people want are, are smaller lots. I mean, I, Jess, I was going through a, an estate in Geelong recently and what surprised me was the lack of private garden space. Um, the houses are big, the lots are small and pretty much the only trees or opportunity for trees is the street trees. Am I being unfair, do you think, Em and Meg? Do you think I'm being a bit snobby? No, I mean, I probably agree, but I I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I've just subdivided my land to <laughs> build on the back, so I have a small backyard and I cut down a heap of trees because I learnt that they're a pain in the ass to your house. Oh, I don't know if I can say that. Sorry. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, being a young, like I, I live with my partner and kind of like a young couple, I guess I'm in that somewhat demographic of, people that are moving to the growth area of, um, you know, people who might have young families and they're working full time and they don't have time to, you know, maintain big backyards and a lot of vegetation and landscaping and things like that. So they're relying on public open space and parks to get, you know, they'd be able to walk, you know, five, 10 minutes, whatever, to their local park to be able to kick the ball around. Um, so, yeah, I do definitely agree that and, and what the feedback we've been getting from developers is that people don't want to have massive yards. They don't have time to maintain them. They're not selling. So that's the kind of product, that's the outcome of, you know, the market and, and having that kind of a product. And I think that starts to put the emphasis as well on um, having really good good quality street trees and, um, you know, median strip planting and trees within medians and those sorts of things because you're right. I mean, certainly in the projects that I'm involved with as well, um, I think the feedback that my clients have received is very similar. Um, and I think the the other part to that is around the maintenance, um, that people just don't have the time or the um, the appetite to be maintaining gardens. And you also, uh, I guess, hear from a lot of people that is, is it better to have a garden that's maintained, uh, sorry, better to have a garden that's unma- unmaintained or to have no garden? And 
I think a lot of people tend to think that it's better to have no garden. So it's a very interesting one. But, Pete, I definitely take your point. I think when you do drive through a lot of them, that is one of the the um, abundantly obvious things that come to mind. I, I think it's pretty sad, Jess. I mean, from you know, I'm, I'm old school. Sorry, um, uh, Megan M. But, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the great Aussie tradition in suburban areas was to have your backyard, and in terms of maintenance, it's not that much to do. Uh, you know, most people can maintain a property, and I, I just think for a lot of kids out there, they, they're going to miss that freedom to roam in their own space. Um, maybe I'm just being nostalgic, Jess, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll move on to issues of employment, mix. Um, how do you get the right, how do you create employment opportunities for these new communities? Employment is, is certainly one of the absolute biggest factors in the growth area. Uh, we know that so much of our population leave the municipality each day to go to work, uh, which is not something that we want to be the long-term outcome. Uh, Cardinia in particular is, is divided into residential precincts and, and employment precincts. And the controls um, so far in our employment precincts are relatively flexible. Um, with the idea being that we don't know what jobs are necessarily going to look like uh, next year or in five years' time um, so that when those when it's time for that land to be developed, it can be flexible and meet however people are working at the time. Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. You mentioned that issue of a, you know, being a commuter, commuter space and, and trying to get that employment. Do you, do you, how do you create sort of the right economic circumstances for employment in these new areas? Unfortunately, uh, employment tends to be a, a population density issue, as we know. Um, you need to have a certain amount of people there uh, before the jobs will follow. Uh, I find really that the, the best things that we can do are to not only designate um, the areas uh, ahead of time so we know where employment's going to be, but also to uh, keep the controls in such a way that they can adjust. And in growth area thinking, what, what have you changed your mind on? Um, even, in, even though you've only been doing it a relatively brief time, what have, what's maybe surprised you or you've changed your mind on? Um, probably from me, from going from um, just like, I guess, normal stat planning into growth area planning, um, stat planning you're very ingrained to achieve your stat days um, and something, I don't know if this is just, you know, our team and our culture of our team, but I guess a big mind frame kind of switch to me was trying to focus on getting better outcomes uh, rather than being so focused on achieving your stat days. So if, you know, rather than trying to issue something at 59 days and it's going to be, be a, a heap of conditions and it's not quite right, 
definitely the different mind frame of let's try and get this right, um, you know, avoid putting a heap of condition one requirements on there. Um, and I guess another thing too in growth areas is kind of that I've, yeah, changed my thinking about is just having more of a kind of common sense kind of approach as well as a more facilitative approach. Um, those are probably the key things that, yeah, I definitely, from when I very first started, you know, two and a half years ago and having that stat brain to to changing it to be in a more growth area mindset, those are probably my my key key things that I've noticed. Look, I suppose the only thing I'd add to would be, I think, originally going uh, growth area planning with the, the stuff you hear about red tape and, and council holdups, I probably had in my mind that we needed to be really firm on um, exactly what we wanted to achieve and to sort of stick to our guns. Growth area planning I've, I've found um, is very much a, a negotiation on, on everything and I've probably changed my mind on quite how important that is. I think that's a common process, Jess, that we we, we come into a lot of things with set ideas and and experience shapes us to be realised that there's sometimes it's not black or white. It's as long as the, you know, as long as the cat catches the mice, that's what you want. Mm, definitely. I also wanted to have a quick chat about um, post-COVID and thinking about how COVID may impact on growth areas moving forward, whether or not you've had a chance to think about this, and sorry, this is probably a question without notice, but it, it gets me thinking, I guess, when we were talking about um, employment in particular and talking about how you create those employment opportunities uh, for the local community, are you starting to see more of the um, uh, the the shared office space kind of model popping up in the growth areas? And do you think that kind of model will start to um, be delivered in a probably great a, a greater um, a greater level to what we've seen in the past um, once we come out of the post-COVID recovery? Look, certainly um, the impacts of COVID are something that we're very much uh, thinking about at the moment. I've got a, a particular um, appeal going on, which is very much reliant on those details. Thinking about um, what that's going to mean for our population numbers and whether we're going to continue to meet the expected amount of people living there or whether um, limits on migration are really going to reduce the amount of people uh, coming in and wanting to live there. In terms of those um, shared employment spaces, we Casey have some some very successful uh, areas that we went into it recently. Uh, it's certainly something that, that we hope to see uh, in the future. But I think even beyond what employment spaces are going to look like, we need to be prepared for residential land potentially being used in a different way for people doing work. Just on the communities that you design, presumably most of the people who come to the new growth areas that you look after have a certain demographic profile that uh, home builders and uh, you know home makers. Do you plan for the follow-on generations that are, are going to happen when those communities communities mature? Look, certainly um, the way that the growth area plans are prepared, it is very much young families uh, focus at the start. We tend to see things like primary schools and childcare centres come online much, much earlier. Um, but the plans do allow for that future growth and um, the future maturity of the community. Uh, 
and particularly our own facilities uh, where you've got, say, land that's set aside um, for a community use. It's not uncommon for us to have kindergartens or maternal child health in early. Uh, we haven't got to that point yet where they're not needed, but those buildings have been designed in such a way that they can transition over to provide whatever service it is. So there's built-in flexibility. Just a question, a random question. You deal with a lot of referral authorities. You know, um, what, what are you, which ones are your favourite referral authorities and why? <laughs> Uh, Meg, do you have a particular favourite? Um, I mean, I've got ones that are not my favourite. <laughs> no. Um, look, yeah, I, I mean, we do have some good relationships with some referral authorities, definitely. I guess um, Melbourne Water is one that we we often have meetings with and have good discussions with. And I think being in a growth area and, and working with PSPs, it, it is really important to have those um, kind of relationships with authorities because we often have to work together and really collaborate, you know, to achieve an outcome that all all mixes in together. So, yeah, it's definitely something that I think if, if we've got good relationships with, with referral authorities, um, that only has, you know, positive outcomes overall. And it's also good because it means, you know, if developers come to us, they have questions about that. We can have contacts, you know, to refer those developers to and, and be involved in meetings altogether and, and things like that. So, yeah, it's really important definitely for us to have build good relationships with external authorities. And knowing everything that you do, both of you, about growth areas, is there a particular, I guess, passion area that you've identified over the years that perhaps you might like to do research on in the future? I think if there was something I was going to to research and uh, by no means know how you would go about doing this, it'd be really great to understand how residents in those growth areas are really using them. Uh, what parks are they going to? What schools are they going to? Uh, how far are they commuting out from work? And using those figures, we might then be able to go back and question some of those assumptions that our PSPs are built on around um, if you have 3,000 people, you need a primary school. If you have 9,000 people, you need an active open space. I think with some, some modern data, we might be able to um, make sure they're still valid um, and if not, adjust. Because I think the, the numbers that we currently use are from early 2000, I think now. So they're probably, you're right, they're probably at a point where they might need some updates um, based on how people use things and use um, services in this day and age. Absolutely. And hopefully as we move forward um, with more smartphone data, um, mm. and parks are becoming smart as well. Um, some of our local bus stops, it might be data that becomes available uh, in due course. Uh, Jess, have you played Cities Skylines? Do you know that game, Jess? No, I saw that and um, no, I haven't actually heard of that one. Is it different to SimCity? It, it's it's like fourth generation SimCity, mm -hmm. if I can call that. So, um, em, Meg, have you seen Cities Skylines? I, I haven't seen it, but um, yeah, I was interested when you when you know mentioned it in the question topics. But I have definitely played SimCity as a kid. So um, yeah, when you're you know talking about if if things like that can you know encourage creativity and and stuff, I definitely think they could. And it's probably something that led me to looking at becoming a planner or working in that kind of a field. Is that I did love playing SimCity when I was a kid, and it probably sparked that interest early on. Definitely. I remember um, this was a couple of years ago now, actually, and I was finishing a thesis as part of my master's. And I, I went out 
um, for dinner, I think, with a couple of friends one night, a couple of planner friends, and someone mentioned that they just recently downloaded um, SimCity on their iPhone. And there was like this this new version of SimCity. And um, anyway, I downloaded it that night. And I remember trying to get this, the final, I think it was the final two weeks of my thesis. And I got completely addicted to SimCity again, which is really embarrassing at, at this point in my life. <laughs> but um, it's, it's so but, funny how um, how relevant it still is. Well, well Jess, Cities Skylines, and listeners were not sponsored by them, it is much, much deeper than sim sim, sim i'm, I'm not sure sim. that i want to download it now <laughs> i'm gonna well, get addicted <laughs> well well the, the level of detail and you have to take you basically have to do what em and meg have to do all the time and that is to make decisions on water the road layout how you're going to connect services what schools you're going to provide and and it, it sort of it measures the well-being of the urban area based on the decisions that you make. So do you, think, um, do you think we should game cities more, uh, M and Meg? Yeah, that sounds awesome. That sounds like a like good fun to do something like that. And I guess, um, yeah, you're right, it, it would, would kind of spark a bit more creativity or I guess a bit understanding of if I what's the outcome if I put this here or if I do that, you know, put that there. What's that, is that going to change, you know, how the water is going to flow to this or, or just like lots of things like that. It'd be great to kind of experiment in that way um, that we're not able to do. I guess, you know, Em and I in our role, we're kind of, you know, so, somewhat trying to just figure it out for ourselves of how is this going to work in the future by just looking at it, you know, on paper. But, um, yeah, I think it would be a great idea and, you know, really good fun to, to do something like that in a game. I know what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> Yeah, you, you'll blame me, Jess. But I, I, you know, I, I, I think based on you know how important these new areas are and how much we are doing of them, I would have thought a lot, a lot more scrutiny—not so much scrutiny, but a lot more assistance—and research should go into informing, you know, what the day-to-day things that Megan M Definitely. have to deal with. The question was around technology, and I know that Cardinia in particular um, is leading the way in a lot of ways um, to do with technology compared to perhaps some other local government areas. I know you're paperless, um, most of your work is now online, and I think I think there's probably a whole series of other things that you do that we don't know about. So I'm wondering if there's other things that um, technology is doing that's helping with your work. Right now, um, recent aerial imagery and near map is of huge benefit to us. Uh, in the COVID environment, we're, we're not out doing site inspections, so uh, those technologies are allowing us to continue to do our job. We also have access to some great uh, plan comparison and, and plan checking softwares that allow you to mark up overlay plans, compare stuff. Um, it's all very important uh, to us as uh, we've had some some people come in before and laugh that uh, as planners in the modern age never used a scale rule or a light box so uh, these technologies are, are our equivalent that we rely on. I think too for us being entirely paperless means we have access to this really large archive of uh, information and past reports so if you're trying to assess something that's relatively new to you because you can go back and find what's happened in the past, you can learn a lot from what's been approved and, and what's been rejected and go from there. 
Good answers. Good answers. Jess, we've moved to, uh, uh, sorry, and Meg, if you have a message to our listeners about, you know, if they're, if they're going to look at growth areas, what would your message be? Um, as in to live in or to work in? No, 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 just to, just for someone who, say the snobs who are just in the inner city and think that's that's where, you know, the planning stops where the tram lines stop, um, what would you say to people about growth areas and the responsibility of trying to get it right? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm definitely a growth area convert. I love working in the growth areas. I think it's you get really good diverse applications and, as I said, you get that real sense of achievement and almost pride of seeing something turn, go from nothing to something, um, you know, seeing a paddock completely transform in the years, you know, to come. So, it, whilst it might seem, I guess, when you put it like that, it, it can sound like it's a really heavy, heavy responsibility and it is. But, um, you know, I think I said previous in the podcast, it really just comes down to having the community in the forefront of your mind. And really all we're trying to do is achieve the best outcome we can with the community in mind. Okay. Podcast extra, Jess. Um, Meg, and this is where we talk about something that uh, caught caught your interest of, of recent times, whether it's a book, music, play, anything. Not that we're seeing any plays at the moment. But, um, Em, do you want to start with what's, what's your podcast extra suggestion to our listeners? Uh, I'm, I'm very happy at the moment that one of my favourite podcasts, uh, The Next Big Idea Club, is still happening in COVID, uh, still releasing new episodes. The idea of the podcast is they interview uh, people who've written new and interesting books. Um, Some great ones I've I've listened to recently are The Inherent Joy in Objects, Understanding uh, Introverts, uh, What You Can Learn About People from Their Stuff. So I would very much recommend giving that a listen. Meg? Um, yeah, so I'm I'm a big reader. I love reading, and I just finished reading um, a book by Jane Harper called The Lost Man. Um, she's written three books now, so I've read the first two, The Dry and Force of Nature. But yeah, she's a really great writer, and and they're really really good books, and they're you know small, easy to read. So definitely recommend. And Jess, what's what caught your interest of late? Well, I've been reading a lot as well, Pete. So I've just started a new book uh, by Sally Hepworth called The Mother-in-Law. So that's um, coming from a a page that I follow um, that recommends a whole series of books. And I've got a little book club going with a couple of friends that we um, we try to usually do probably about a book a month, depending on the month. But um, yeah, that's our one for, for this month. So it's really good. I've only just started it, but I'm really enjoying it so far. What about you, Pete? Well, Jess, I've been converting a lot of old film that I took a long time ago um, into movies and distributing it around um, uh, the extended family and friends, and that's. Well, we know we know how much you love your handheld camcorder, Pete. Well, how could we forget? I, I, I know, Jess, you make a lot of fun <laughs> of my, but I, I, I love film and I, I love making the new film, making films of long ago, and because. You know, you take film 25 years ago and a number of those people aren't with us, sadly. But when you see them on film, you see how they walk and talk and, and just all sorts of things. But So I've been going through a bit of a nostalgia, but the joy that that gives to the extended family and, and friends has been terrific. And that led me to a great poem, Jess, called Eden Rock by Charles Causley. So that's a bit of a nostalgic poem where 
someone goes back and imagines what their parents were like before, the, the, you know, they had kids, and um, it's very, very touching. Like most poems. Yes, I know you like them, but that's a wrap, I think. Uh, Emily and Megan, thank you so much for coming along. Uh, Jess, it's been a, I'm going to look at growth theories in a completely different way now. Your thank thoughts? you. Thanks for having us. Definitely. That was really insightful. Thank you. And, and we're part of the Urban Broadcast um, Collective listeners, so please listen to that. Um, and thank you for listening in your busy lives to our little podcast. So thanks again, Jess, M, Meg, all the best to you. Thanks, everyone.